one of the friendliest guys in there was someone who choked his wife to death in a in a car in an argument, and he was just a big, big Kiwi teddy bear, and you just. That's interesting, though, isn't it? How did you? How, did everyone know that he did that? Then I guess. Yeah, for sure. I met today's guest in Adelaide, South Australia. He gave me a different perspective again on crime. He describes himself as non-violent and we talk about his time in prison and how he went from dealing party drugs to his friends to using the business principles he'd learned at uni to sell more drugs. My name's Matt Price and this is Conversations with Criminals. One of probably the most interesting thing I saw in jail, well, interesting to me, I mean, take the, the more hectic, violent stuff out of it, was uh, so in in the main remand center, all the it's it's all on levels on top of each other and and cells on top of each other, so all the plumbing is connected. Right. All all the toilets are connected. So every night, once the guards lock you up, people push the water out of the toilet and have conversations through the through the pipes in the toilet. And then and then what they do is you know grab the toilet brush and they tap on the roof or tap on the floor and then that guy empties his one and then. And then you tell him, oh, actually, I want to talk to this guy in this cell, this cell over here. And then they tap through the wall and tap along until they connect it all up. And then they have a quick conversation about when drugs are coming in or, you know, what the missus, what the missus said and, and, or give this phone number about this guy. That's amazing. But it gets even crazier because one time, uh, we were, me and my cellmate, it was like a Vietnamese sort of, like a, a nice guy, but he was well connected in that sort of community. And, um, we were pretty friendly. Uh, we ran out of smokes one time. And so we tapped up a few cells and found this guy who had some smokes. And then he starts, starts ripping up this sheet into a giant rope. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, we're going to, we're going to get some smokes. And all the cells are locked. You can't leave. You can't do anything. Makes a, a giant rope out of this sheet. And then he gets the shower curtains hooks and he starts putting them every 30 centimeters, like little claws along this rope on the end. And I was just so confused. And then the guy from up top says, okay, I'm ready. And he flushes the rope down the toilet, holding one end. And what happens is the guy two cells above has, has made the same rope and flushed his. And both the ropes have met in the middle of the pipe and the shower hooks have connected onto each other, and then he's put he's put tobacco in a in a in a garbage bag and some some papers, some matches, and some uh, a bit a nugget of weed as well. Put it in there, and he's he's pulled it out through the toilet, thrown it in the shower, washed it off a bit, and he rolled us a joint. And we watched Adventure Time on on TV that afternoon. That's amazing. I mean, that is amazing. I was like, what kind of genius has to have been locked up before to come up with this kind yeah. of thing? That, that's one thing that strikes me because there's so, there's so many sort of very talented, enterprising people in, who are involved in crime, I think. Yeah. And, and I can't imagine how does someone come up with that? There was, there was some guy who had like three, three properties, three grow houses. You know, we're talking he has three homes, the whole home is just inside. It's just like lights and like marijuana plants, I'm guessing. 
Um, well, that's what he told me anyway. Yeah. But he was in there for selling for because he was making all this money off the harvesting the pot. Um, Centrelink's like welfare here. Oh, right. Yeah. He's making all this money off harvesting the pot that he didn't bother getting a job. So to, to get a, to throw them off the scent of, of not getting a job, he um, you know, applied for jobless sort of welfare. Right. And he was, they didn't catch him or any of the houses or anything. They, he, they just put him in there for not not getting a job and and yeah. and lying about you know being without a partner and, and things like that. So you got this guy in there who's, who's smart enough to make this big secret weed empire that wasn't smart enough to evade the tax man. Yeah. And one of the friendliest guys in there was someone who choked his wife to death in a in a car in an argument. And he was just a big, big Kiwi teddy bear. And you just... That's interesting though, isn't it? How did you... How, did everyone know that he did that then, I guess? Yeah, for sure. Did he ever talk about that? Yeah, he'd, he'd always be asking people's opinions on like, you know, what can my lawyer say to to help me, you know, get a better result with this? You know, is it... You know, he'd all be, always be asking the people who'd been in several times, you know, how does it work with, you know, mental health problems or, you know to come up with ways to get a reduced sentence for, sure. you know, go, get it down to manslaughter or um, that kind of thing. Yeah. People oh, always swap uh, swap things about their cases unless they're, no, they don't want you to know what their charge is because it's like so many people have gone through the same process before. It's like, well, what can I expect in court here or what's a good way of, of justifying this or... Oh. What's a good lawyer to go with and what's a good way to... So it's sort of like this little legal aid network of people who have just done the crime before and they've, or they've, they've, they've had enough cellmates and things like that that yeah. they've said, oh, well, this guy actually got a better sentence by saying this or, or doing that or he got away with this because of that. Ah, it does, does happen a lot. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's the crims versus getting out or it's the crims versus the guards or it's the... What are the guards like? I'm curious about Australian guards. Are they, are they okay? Is there a good relationship? Can it, or is it variable? I mean, there's guys that walk around supervising and locking doors and things like that. When shit hits the van, they have to get in there, and but they all just pile in straight away. I mean, they got like little buzzers, and and within seconds, there's thirty. The whole the whole building's in the room. You know, they're just specialized security guards, really. Yeah. You know, they weren't probably didn't have what it takes to be cops or really care that much you know they're they sort of treat you a bit like dirt and they're always un, under suspicion and they always look down on you like you're a scum and but they don't they're not often like abusive or yeah. whatever but i guess as you would probably know you you can't can't befriend them or you can't tell them anything no 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 i've heard no i I'm sure. I'm sure you can't. It, it's interesting, actually. I just find different sort of attitudes in you know various countries. I'm trying to sort of understand. I mean, I think it's pretty much the same as back home in the UK. Actually, I've heard of people. I've heard of um, well, they call them screws in the UK. Yeah. Oh. And yeah, we've yeah. Call them that too, or heaps different. Yeah, oh, there's lots names. of different terms. But I was. I basically wrote like a whole um, like prison slang glossary at one stage oh, because did it, you really? there was so much. There's so many little things that you never hear on the outside or you never hear outside of very poor areas. And, you know, I was had to learn how to speak the lingo to get a, 
to get along oh, with people because I'd come. You, can you tell me some of the lingo? Like, oh, what, what, what was confusing at first then? Is there, is there like, I've, I've sort of like forgotten most of it. Um, like if I, but if I went back in, it would come back straight away. Like what it, what it all means, but it's just, it's just little phrases. It's nothing like that, that special. Okay. But by learning that lingo, does that help you then to blend in? I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, when you first get there, it's like, oh, what's, what's this weak private school white boy doing here? He doesn't fit in. And, right. and by the end of it, it's like you, you're big, muscly, working out all the time. You're talking the talk. You're, yeah. Oh, that, that, that's cool. You, know, you, you could tell that you've been there a while now. Like, and it's like, so, all right, you're, I guess you're one of us now. You're not just, you're fitting in more kind of thing. And so, but, so they would make assumptions then being the white privately educated dude that they would assume you're a certain way well you yeah you'd say oh well this this guy doesn't know what he's in for yet or because a lot of a lot of the, a lot of them come in and they're just like oh hey damo hey jeff yeah back for another six weeks yeah okay. yeah got me again you know they've hey, half of the place knows the place already right. you know they've already done time them for their repeat offenders they're yeah. um have been in and out for a long time. I mean, we're talking about a lot of these people who are always on drugs or they have very, they don't have teeth, they don't have jobs, they don't have options. They, yeah. So they're in the system and they keep coming back. Yeah. I mean, there's some of the, some of the indigenous guys were like, yeah, got out, couldn't handle it, wasn't, eat, wasn't eating. Yeah, I was just freaking out. So I thought I'd come back. You know, like some of them just that institutionalized that they, commit little crimes just to come back so they can see their mates and get three square meals a day and you know and have a place to sleep because that's that's how hard their life is on the outside they're like oh jail was ripper you know get to go gym and get a place to sleep and get a tv and they don't, they don't even have any of that and i'm just like wow well that's hard i don't want to ask about prison violence i'm gonna all i can but I, i'm because what I, th- I suppose what's interesting is you talk about the little network inside, you know, like people supporting each other. I guess rather talk about violence. Have you ever? What's the kindest thing you've seen in jail? Can you think of anything? Just not bringing negativity to other people is is you know the kindest thing. People don't really go above and beyond. Yeah. You still you still got to have a a tough facade or whatever it is. There's there's I mean, there's guys in the same bikey groups or guys that have been brothers for a long time that, you know, they, they've got love and, a lot of love and respect. Or, yeah. I mean, one thing that brought us all together one time is we made a caramel, a giant caramel slice. A few of us bought, you know, scotch finger biscuits and, and stole a bunch of butter and made a base and put it in the fridge. And then we, we all bought big tubes of condensed milk and put them in thermoses for 24 hours and made caramel and squeeze it all out in a giant Monopoly board, made the caramel layer, and then we melted up, you know, melted up some dairy, blocks of dairy milk and, and made a top. And, you know, on my birthday, we had a we had a Monopoly board-sized caramel slice and we just, you know, just got a ruler and cut it up in the bits and just gave it out to everyone. And, and that was just before Christmas as well, so you don't really get much Christmas in there. So that was... That was a bit of a, you know, everyone sort of chipped in a bit to get get a little luxury that you can't get in there unless you make it yourself. Just hypothetically, how, how could I how could I get into crime in Adelaide? 
Well, a lot of the crime, I would say, is deep south and deep north, the poorer suburbs. Okay. But there's also bikey gangs, you know, Vietnamese gangs, things like that, but you just don't see them very often. Okay. Un- underworld sort of stuff that you just, you'd have to really go looking for, I guess. But um, most of the stuff we we're aware of is just selling party drugs and being part of that. Did you have to be, did you have to know the bikey gangs and the Vietnamese in order to do that, in order to sell drugs? No, not at all. You just got to know a guy or just, just one connection or multiple ones and i guess if you kept going further up it would probably go to something like that but you know you don't really want to you don't unless you want to be known as someone that's a a bikey or something like that, you sort of stay away from that we we weren't doing it to be criminals which is i started taking pills and smoking weed and things like that when i was like 17 18 and then you and then then how did it happen how did you work out that maybe you could Sal, I mean, how did that? Well, at the time, I was probably mixed up with the wrong sort of guys, like no jobs, and but wanted to party all the time, and but didn't want to work. So they all started selling small amounts to people to be able to afford to go do that, and everyone was doing it. And then I was working a couple of jobs, and I lost both of them. And after a few weeks of being poor and being a bit of a scab or a leech of people, I took control and. Started selling a little bit here and there. It was known as a bit of a, a loud, outgoing person. So it was kind of easy to get on to people to start selling some pills and things like that. Um, so how, how quickly does your reputation develop? And if you're like selling stuff, how do you get known? Well, that's it. You don't want to be known. You want to be known enough by people who you could, who are just in it for the right reasons, just want to party and you know, aren't dangerous you want to be known enough by them to sell enough to make that easy and quick so you can get back to what you really want to do, which is have fun and not have to worry about that. But I guess it just escalated over time. I was doing some study, doing some uni, learning business sort of things, and I sort of started to apply those concepts that most people were not using in that kind of trade, uh, you know, to Im- to improve profits and to sell more and and reduce risk and, and things like that. I, I took to it like a small business eventually because um, I saw a lot of my friends, you know, they would be selling all these all this stuff and taking on all, all, all this extra risk and they would have no money left over and they'd still be poor and, you know, I didn't want to be that. I wanted to make it worth the risk. That's really interesting, actually, that you would apply business principles to actually to, to dealing. Tell me about risk then. Like, what what would be what would be the risk in selling drugs? Obviously, there's the police, but is there a threat from from other people who are dealing as well? Yeah, the more you're treading on toes or territory, or the more money you're making and someone's jealous of it, or the more you're just disliked personally. Yeah, there's there's lines other people are willing to cross or there's more violent types out there than, than maybe yourself. And you know, everyone's always afraid of getting caught or dubbed on or, I mean, I was arrested two, three times and every time I was, you know, dubbed on or informed on. Or, right. Okay. And how, how does that feel? Did, did you know who did it? I don't really like, don't really want to talk about that. Cause That's okay. That's cool. Yeah. I'm not the revenge type or anything, but oh, 
you know, I'm just I'm more it's, interested. It's it's much it's much easier whether I know or not to just leave it in the past. Sure. Because it doesn't help me. Yeah. To to dwell on it or want anything out of that kind of thing. Yeah. And what about like if I may ask about like your supplier, so the people who supplied you, were they more hardcore than the people who are at the same level as you? Because I'm trying to understand sort of like the structure of how it works. Depends. Depends who it was, but yet again, you know, you can't really talk about these kind of people, um, and you don't, you don't really want to know. If you're asking all these questions and trying to figure out all these things, you're, you're going to be suspicious to these people. You just, and you, you the more conversations you have, you know, the more risk you're you're taking on. So it's just easier to just keep it short, sharp, and shiny, and plausible deniability basically right so if you're never asked i mean if if i was in a position you know higher up risky position and and this kid was asking me how does this work or when does this happen or who who do you know i would i would be like what the, the fuck what do you why do you want to know like why does it matter right okay yeah so you you learn things and you hear things that you don't even ask but you you just don't find it important you i didn't want to be Someone just wanted to, yeah, that makes sense. Make some money and and have friends and and then the addictions and things take over and it, it's harder to control. But I mean, it's still quite a long time ago now. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I can, I can. We're talking like two thousand and ten, eleven, twelve. Sure. Yeah. So a lot can happen in that time as well, and I'm sure that it has. Hi, this is Matt. I just wanted to say at this stage that my guest at the time of this recording, March 2020, was still on parole. So it was actually very generous of him to give me his time in this way and invite me to his house. He put a great deal of trust in me, really, giving me this interview. So I just wanted to thank him for being so candid, given how much he could potentially lose by talking to someone. The conversation continues now when we discuss him being raided. Yeah, well, the first time I got got raided, and they found a lot of everything. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I thought I was getting going to be rolled by bikies or something, but it was actually just cops and. So, what what time was the, what time were you raided? What time of day or night? Maybe like nine or nine or nine p.m. or something like that on like a Thursday night, I think. Okay. So can you tell me that you sat at home, were you by yourself? Did you have anyone with you? Uh, a couple of friends around. Okay. And is it is it scary? Because I imagine with that, because I'm, I'm trying to understand what Australian police are like, because I mean, I'm here as a tourist. So this time wasn't that, wasn't, or well, it's scary because I knew how much stuff I had there. Like, you know, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars and thousands of pills and sure. and bunch of other stuff. and. Right. Yeah, and enough to be very, very serious. Yeah. Um, and you, you're just powerless, really. But I was pretty messed up, so you're sort of numb to it until later on. Uh, uh, forgive my ignorance here. Are Australian police armed? Do they? Yeah, it's sort of like they were detectives, so with a couple of like uniformed officers. Right. Just, but. Uh, it was just me and like one or two others and we're all sort of non-violent types. So there wasn't, but the, the second time I got raided was like, I woke up completely naked with another girl completely naked. And there's like five star force, which is our version of SWAT. Right. It was five like full kitted guys with 
know, assault rifles, sort yeah. of standing around in my bedroom yelling, you know, get up, don't touch anything, blah, blah, blah. And I'd just, I'd just been up for like two or three days and, and only been, and been out drinking and I was like asleep maybe four or five hours and woke up completely naked and I was like, oh, what is going on? Yeah, that must have been, yeah, that'd be, that must be quite surreal. How was the woman who was with you, was she like in a state as well? She was, yeah, she was freaking out. Because I would, I mean, I, like, I put myself in your shoes, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be freaked out. So what, what happens then? So like they arrest you, how, how do they sort of treat you? That's all. How did they treat you? Let's put you in the car and take you back to what's called the watch house, which is like an interim between. Um, it's like a, I guess in America you say you go to a jail, then you go to a prison. Right. Here you go to a watch house, and it's basically it's all just concrete cells with concrete beds and a metal toilet. There's no nothing except for maybe one book. Right. Or, but they put me in there for like three days with just a, a canvas uh, blanket, so no pillows or anything, and. They bring your wheat bix every now and then. Right, okay. Were you by yourself? Yeah, yeah. And the light's always on and, yeah, so you're just in there sort of coming down and trying to not think about it for a few days and you can be in there for weeks, which is like really breaks you down. Yeah, it must do. I was going to say. You just try and sleep as much as you can. There's nothing to do. There's no one to talk to or anything like that. So by the time you come out of there... But the, your first time I got given bail, so I was only in there for like one night but the second time i went second time i went there i was in there for a week and a half um basically just sleeping the whole way through wow and, and coming down at the same time yeah that's that's gonna be very hard going and then did you did you then have to go to jail or to the second time i got uh sorry the, the third time i got arrested um I never came out from there. Um, I didn't come out on bail or anything. I was away for um, just over two years and then 15 months on home detention. Okay. And and what what's what? Can you talk me through the process of jail having to having to go? You know, sort of when when you arrive because so so you spent time in this place, a sort of interim place where you're coming down you're in there for like a week or whatever and then you go to actually being in prison or jail or whatever the term is well i went to the remand center okay which is like where you go when you haven't been convicted but you're too you've you've had enough charges or you're too dangerous to be let let out so it's you know and it's it's technically high security so you got people who have murdered people right next to people who are there on um welfare fraud Sure. Yes. Yes. I've yeah. It's all a big. Often. It's all a big mix. Um, but it's it's very small. It's actually just. It's actually like a looks like an office building in the city, but it's actually a like a a prison fortress. I could see my university um, through the windows. Yeah. So did you? Were you by yourself? Were you in a cell with other people? Did you share? Oh, it's all it's all mixed. There was times over the couple of years where I had my own cell, earned my own cell, but mostly with cellmates who were it's all the worst kind of people really like no one you would want to catch up with again on the outside but you have to sort of make a you have to get along with everyone yeah am i allowed to ask you i don't want to ask the crimes that they've done necessarily but like can you talk me through their character i mean like because you're coming at it from the point of view of being a businessman are we, are we what, what type of people 
probably talking that you Oh, want. like very poor drug addicts, wide wide up, bit bit kooky, very violent. Depending on who. How how would you cope with the violence in prison? Because I'm interested in that. I mean, because you describe yourself as a non-violent person, which I think is yeah. It's just I think I learned eventually if if you don't do any drugs and you don't owe anyone any money and you don't lie to anyone and you don't spread information on anyone and you reasonably have a reasonably good attitude and you work out all the time, everyone just sort of just goes oh yeah no harm. You know, you're not a, you're not important. It's it's when you're it's when you're getting involved in in things or getting involved in drugs or getting or owing people things or lying or that sort of thing. That's when you start to get in in trouble. So you can get involved in stuff in jail if if you, if, if you know. So it's I mean, there's an opportunity to get involved with things. Yeah, there's all drugs getting smuggled in, and everyone just wants to be on drugs all the time because. The waiting and the the boredom or whatever's done, you know, makes time go faster. Sure. I guess for him or. So how did you cope then with with, with that kind of boredom? And I just crazy? went the other direction. I just said like oh, I needed this or, um, you know, it's not getting any better. Time to turn turn yourself around and or use use this time wisely. So I was just working out twice a day every day and got quite fit and. That's that was my sort of thing, and read books and watched TV or played cards. And, and did you then? So did you then decide right? That's it. When you when you were in there, did you think I'm going to stop now, or how how did it come to an end? Because this is very much in your past, isn't it? So, well, as in taking drugs, or well, I mean taking drugs, selling drugs. Well, you don't want to sell drugs in there. I mean, it's not you're not going to make money in there. You just make right. life more comfortable by having more smokes or yeah, sure, or packets of tuna or yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I didn't want to take anything anymore because I don't know, it just didn't it didn't really seem worth it. And plus, you know somebody, I guess as well, wouldn't you? potentially. You know, I guess it, yeah, yeah, it. just didn't really interest me like uh, taking drugs was mostly just like something I wanted to do with friends to have a good time and I wasn't with friends and I wasn't having a good time so it felt like it wouldn't help at all so so tell me about coming out then so, so you come out of the uh, out of the system How, what was it like when you walk out day one well it was a little bit different because I got released from a jail in the in the riverland and that was like a very different jail. That was like a sort of like low security. So it's just like a big caravan park. You know, there's no fences and right, okay. Um, just orchards everywhere. You can go running in them, and prisoners have their own cars and uh, utes and stuff if they got jobs and pick up other prisoners and go to the dairy farm and things like that. Okay, it's like real low security. You got to earn through good behaviour and sure. or a long time to get somewhere like that. Is it a good vibe in there then? Are people like easier to get along with? It's it's better and it's less tense and there's more space to to not be around people or and and people don't want to lose their chance or their opportunity to to be there because it's much better um, than the the higher security places. So people don't want to muck that up because they know they'll get sent back to somewhere way worse. Yeah, I mean it's still. 
still always on the knife's edge, the, all these places. You know, it still could just turn violent very, very easily in the wrong situations. Getting out of there, I was, my mum picked me up and took me home to start home detention. So it was sort of like another limbo. Right. I've gone from higher security to lower security. So it's like another step down, then onto home detention, which is like another step down because you still can't do much on home detention. I mean, they'll let you go to uni or work, which is what I did. I just, I went and did a degree and I went and started working full time so I could leave the house. But you can't do anything apart from that. You can only really sit at home and watch footy and play PlayStation and yeah, sure. okay. download movies. And When you went on home detention and, and you're, you know, you're going to uni and you've got a job, did people know that you were in that situation? At work, like, um, I worked with my current housemate at the time and my boss... My two bosses knew and and he knew, of course, but basically didn't tell anyone else unless I was got sort of closer to them or trusted them, I guess. Yeah. And, and one thing I've heard people say to me, I mean, obviously you've got your own story, but I was talking to a guy who was a Coke dealer and he said to me, he said, the, the hardest thing for him, he, he went to jail, he came out of jail, and he said, I didn't have any coke anymore, and I didn't have any friends. He said, and it really hurt him. But it sounds to me like you've kept your close friends. Is, am I right in that? Yeah, I mean, it was, we weren't as close because you can, you only get like a phone call here and there inside, or it's, it's a lot of effort to get someone to come out and, and, and see you. So I kept in touch a little bit with everyone. But the person I was before I went inside was, not, not the best person anyway. So I had to come out and sort of reconnect with everyone and prove that I'd, I'd put an effort to change and I just didn't expect, you, know, you can't go in or come out thinking, oh, these people have all left me or you know, they owe me better or anything like that. You just, just start up again, really. So I still, most of my friends are still ones that I had yeah. before. Um, they just see me in a much better light now, which is much better I guess and, so. and how, how did you change then because because you say because you talk about yourself as a different person back then and I, and I completely believe you but what what was the process of changing how, how did that come about well it's just the you know the detoxing and the self-realizations I mean at the time I was so rattled on so many different drugs I was so stressed and and depressed and I guess those sort of feelings and anxieties were projected in my behavior, but I was too sort of out of it to self-assess what kind of behavior that that was and, and that it was bad or, or narcissistic or selfish or, you know, toxic. Yeah. And then since then, you know, now I don't really struggle with depression and anxiety as a result of my lifestyle or drugs or anything like that and can just be a positive, you know, influence in people's lives or just just be a general normal decent person and what would you say to like a young dude who was going to like go down the same path as you i know it's a different but because obviously there's different ways of doing it if someone and they wouldn't this is very hypothetical if someone said listen you know i kind of want to do what you did i don't think anyone would come across it like that i think they'd more be like they would just they would slowly ease into it like i did they'd be like oh i'm just doing they would justify it or obviously they'd be like i'm just I'm just helping a few friends out or I'm just having a good time and then a year later it's like oh, I'm 
yeah, no, no, I've got a, I've got a handle on it, and blah 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 blah, and things can start to get out of control. And I do still talk to or like semi mentor a couple of younger guys that I oh. am, am friends with who still who are doing that sort of stuff. And you know, I try and explain, you know, risk versus reward. You don't want to tell them, oh, you're an idiot, don't don't sure, do that because yeah. it's not they're not going to listen to you. But say, like, look. You know, this is not worth it or consider this, you know, have an exit strategy, you know, make sure you're looking at who you actually tell anything to or trust. Sure, yeah, yeah. That kind of stuff and, and you know, don't get too close to them because you don't want to be, get involved or anything, but you don't want them to see go, them go down the dark path. And That's really interesting, actually. I'm thinking about, I mean, I'm always curious as to how, how people climb the ladder. I mean, again, it's a hypothetical question, but from where from where you were at and the level that you were at, what would have been the next level, if I can ask you that? Of, of well, it's, you're. I would say you start as like a, a runner, which is someone who just helps their buys a bit more than what they would have, and then sells on to their friends. Yeah. Then, then it escalates to oh, okay. Well, I'm gonna. I'm going to buy or get on credit a bit more than that and I'm going to find people who in, in my wider network who buy and, and get them to come to me. Yeah. And and then it escalates to, oh, okay, now I'm now I'm like a one-stop shop every weekend. You have the same people coming back and back and back. And then the going up is when you, you find the connection that can get everything larger amounts cheaper and then you start to... To show to the other guys at your level like oh you can come through me now and it'll be cheaper or easier or more reliable or better quality or but the risk then is is now we're talking proper risk right that that's a lot more money a lot more exposure a lot more heat yeah so from the police and, right and then to go else. even further you've got to be you know in a long time or really connected to be one of the suppliers where you're just, you know, you only only supply for, for, I'm guessing, three, four, five people a week or something. Right, yeah. Um, just large amounts and then, you know, you just sit back and don't do much at all and it's sort of like a, you just collect the money and... How much money would those people make? I'm, I'm just, I'm curious. I never really wanted to know or find out, I'm assuming a fair bit, but... You're the most practical person I've met. And I mean that with as a compliment. It, 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 it suddenly it makes sense to me that that if you're going about treating it as a business and eliminating risk, it makes sense that yes, you're not going to be friends with you know with someone you're getting. You're There's different motivations why why people do it. I mean, some people, you know, they right, don't have any friends or a bad childhood upbringing and they will, and they want to be known as a scary violent bikey type yeah. you know they want to be the one with the face tattoos they want to be feared and respected or um you know because they maybe because they weren't loved enough or something sure whereas none of that interests me it was just more you know if i i'm going to be a a piece of shit party animal and i'm not going to be in any state to get a job or keep a job Let's at least pay my way and make enough money to. I mean, I had even grander delusions of you know making enough money to to you know support all my friends as well and things like that at the time, which all. But I mean, I was pretty young and on a lot of drugs, so. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it's a nice, it's a nice ideal, though, isn't it? Can, can I ask you something very personal? How, how did your mum feel about it? Yeah, I guess she's shocked and upset, but still supportive. I mean, yeah. and she picked you up from jail and you're at home. Yeah, I came and visit all the time and help out through court and everything. You know, didn't ban me or anything. It was just, yeah. I guess it was you know pretty hard hard for her because they didn't know most of that was going on or, or anything at all. They just said, oh, you know, he was bright in school and you know he's out there trying to learn himself or, or become, you know, figure out his identity or you know didn't we didn't talk that much because I was sort of hiding that kind of. Yeah. Life, lifestyle, yeah. And now, I mean, I don't, don't need to know about your job, but is life good now? Is yeah, you happy? Yeah, it's much better. I mean, should be able to make you more money and do more once I'm off parole soon. So, because because then you can travel and, and less restrictions and and things like that. But working, making plenty of money, you know, just graduated uni and. Was, did you graduate in business as well? Uh, marketing and communications. Marketing and communications. Cool. That, that's really good. So, what's the plan? To be a legitimate businessman, am I guessing? Most likely, yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. And of course, thank you very much to my guest as well. It was really good to meet you and I hope to catch up with you again when I'm next in Adelaide. Please continue supporting me. If you can leave a review on iTunes, I'd greatly appreciate it. I'm on Twitter at, at Matt Price Comedy and there will be more podcasts. I'll uh, speak to you soon.